When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the legend of Sublime, which is one of those weird 90s stories that just never ends. Bradley Noel, the band's frontman, of course died in 1996 before the band actually broke out. But as with many things in the 90s, it persisted. And in some form, Sublime is still touring. It's called Sublime with Rome, and it has uh, Eric Wilson, the original bass player, and this guy, Rome Ramirez, who's a little bit of a miracle in his own right, this kid who basically grew up worshiping Sublime and ended up in a version of Sublime who really learned everything about Bradley Noel and is able to play like him and kind of sing like him and hopefully put his own twist on it. We had the current version of Sublime with Rome in the studio and we talked about what they're doing now and we also had Eric really break down in great detail exactly how Sublime got together. He ended up being a great storyteller, but let's hear the beginning of my conversation with Sublime with Rome. I wonder if you guys could just, uh, for the sake of the listening audience, could go around and just say who you are and what you do in the band so they know who's talking. What's up? I'm Rome. I'm the with Rome. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Carlos. I play drums. I'm Eric. I play bass. All right. These guys have a new album out called Blessings. Let's hear a single from that, Spiderweb. And before we really dig into it, bro, maybe tell me a little bit about how that song came together. The music bed for that song, the guitar chords and the arrangement came together for just a record that I was doing for this like random Australian artist. But I really liked the music bed and he didn't end up using the record. So then when we were doing our album, I brought it in and as per usual, like, as soon as he fucking plays bass on that shit, man, it just becomes like a different record. It like moves different. Then he puts some live drums on it. And then, so it just started to really sound like something. And then lyrically, this was right around the time where my wife was just about to be born with my first kid. And I was just kind of like paraphrasing, kind of like the challenges that you get into when you're on this side of the fence, you know, after you have been touring for a while and you have A&Rs and managers and all these people kind of telling you, you should do it like this, you should do it like this. And I'm 30 now and it was just kind of like retelling that story of just like, yep, how life can change. And obviously Sublime with Rome is kind of built on the legend of Sublime and uh, you guys were, of course, not in the original band. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your first encounter with Sublime's music, both of you. I mean, I was a kid. I was in San Diego visiting my uncle. I was getting in a lot of trouble in school, so like my parents would jump at the chance whenever my family would offer to watch me for a couple months in the what, summer. What kind of trouble? You know what, man? Like, I grew up in the Bay and it was just stealing and fighting, just dumb shit that all of our other older peers were doing. And yeah, you know, so like, I was down in San Diego and that's when I heard Sublime for the first time and I was like dude this is crazy ass music I never heard any shit like this because I really liked reggae music and I really liked hip hop but like I never heard it together before yeah yeah so and when I heard that it was just like it was fire I heard like ironically it was wrong way I had the whole 
album. So then I came back home, and after that summer, I told my parents, I was like, yo, I'm, I want a guitar. I want to like learn how to play guitar. I want to learn how to play these songs, you know? And yeah, man, like just that's what started like the infatuation, you know? I wanted to be like a SoCal boy so bad. <laughs> it was so whack. Me and my little bro, like we're from Northern California, but we were just like all about that Southern California lifestyle. Yeah, I've read about this. It's like some cosmic, you were meant for this in some weird way. I don't know yeah, about yeah. that, but <laughs> I was just at a really, really good, Good place at a good time when he walked in the studio. So, hey, yeah. tell him about when you, uh, you and your brother would watch some sports. Oh yeah. man, yeah, we were like kids and shit, and we'd watch Long Beach. Like we were like such fanatic of Sublime that we would just support Long Beach. Period. Their basketball team. Do you remember that shit? Their football teams. I'm like getting red talking about it. But like, because we were just kids, bro. Like literally, I was like, I was like 11 years old. You know what I mean? Like 11, he was 10 or nine at the time. And you know, when you're 11 or 10 and nine, some kids like this movie or like Fortnite or whatever now. We were like, we fuck with Sublime. Like that was it. We liked the way they dressed. We liked the music, the lyrics. I don't even know what weed is, but I can't wait to see that shit, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you've told this story a million times, but just for the sake of it, to go from the Sublime super fan to the singer of Sublime with Rome, I mean, that it's like you won a contest. Dude. How did, <laughs> yeah. Tell the story of how it actually happened. Well, so in the quest of falling in love with the band and then wanting to then learn music and then create a band, I try to start a lot of bands. And the thing about me is like, I'm a very passionate person. It's also my fault. So I get really, really, really obsessed with something mm -hmm. and I just want to dive in and do it all. And I had a hard time meeting a lot of people like that. Musicians, band members, whatever. It's hard to meet people who are just gung-ho about shit all the way through and throughout. So I was like trying to start a band and my thing was like, all right, I'm gonna just try to start a band and then tour and I'll be happy. And um, you know, that didn't work out. So I was like, I need a backup plan. So I decided that I wanted to like become like an audio engineer and move down to LA and then just start working at a studio and then making my way up the ranks and whatever. So I moved down to LA and I started working at this studio in Orange County and Eric was friends with the owner and they were in a band together at the time. And I just, by luck, he happened to be coming through the studio and I remember the first time I even got there like he has a plaque on the wall for the self-titled album The Engineer because they're friends and I guess he worked on it and yeah man I was just like in a really weird spot where it's like cosmically I was like I can't believe even right now I'm like in that space right now where dudes from Sublime be hanging out dude it was just a really organic boring relationship yeah. he just always throws the dopest parties and it's like yo start coming over to these parties you know and then eventually he was like why don't you come jam and then and you were just, like, by the way, I know how to play every single one of your songs. Yeah, well, that was another thing, too, though, because Eric never plays Sublime, and everybody, a lot of people, they'll like go over to his house and be like, dude, can we jam fucking What I Got or Santa Ria? <laughs> and like, I was such a fan of his that I was like, playing it cool. And I like all the same punk rock bands that he likes. He'd be like, let's play Misfits, or let's play NBC, or let's play Bad Brains, let's play Circle Jerks. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So it was like, Wow, and that's really out of your time. I mean, that's no, dude. When we heard Sublime, like, oh, I see we you liked traced all the roots. <laughs> I dude, I hate all the shit that come after. Not hate, but I have a hard time connecting. Yeah, and Celos is a fucking punk too, you know. So it's like I don't know. No, it I just it don't make dad. sense. Like, oh yeah, and my dad, yeah, no, my, my dad's a punker, but he's been listening to some crazy church psalms lately. He's old now. <laughs> yeah, I didn't bug him with the Sublime stuff. I just kind of let him like, hey, you want to play a Sublime song? You'll ask me. 
baby. And he asked him to be in the band. Crazy, man. How about your first experience, Carl? I grew up listening to Sublime, and one of my neighbors worked for Skunk. And Sorry so to hear that. That's, that's, how I, <laughs> that's how I got introduced, pretty much. And I grew up in Oceanside, California, and it was a small beach town. And it was kind of like the Long Beach of San Diego, where... It was a little bit more rough, and but still had the music and the surf and skate kind of aspect to it, you know? Yeah, so yeah. I just grew up in that culture and fell in love with the music. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. You've been listening to the beginning of my interview with Sublime with Rome. We're going to be playing more of that in just a minute. Eric, tell me a little bit about growing up and starting to play bass. How did that all work for you? And was that your first um, instrument? So my dad was a drummer, and... Uh, he handed me a trumpet one day and said that drums were too much to carry around. So. <laughs> but I never liked the trumpet, so I never got good at it. <laughs> but actually, it's pretty weird how I got a, my first bass. I was kind of trying to learn how to play guitar. I had some crappy guitar. And, uh, but actually, I was walking home with my friends one day, and I was lying to him about how I had a bass, and I played bass. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. And my brother was taking piano lessons, and my dad found a recycler magazine he found like an organ and it came with a bass so i'm lying to my friends and when i get home there's a bass sitting there yeah whoa <laughs> yeah it was like a knockoff of the sg called the orlando and what was the first stuff you learned to play was it punk rock from the beginning or did you transition into that probably the first song i ever learned was probably some minor thread song or, or sham 69 or something like that And did you have a sense right away, like, this is what I want to do, or did it just seem fun? Yeah, well, I grew up around music 24-7. My dad had the jazz station on all the time, and I was uh, kind of turned off about music because, it, I mean, he literally had it all the time on this old tube uh, radio on uh, KLON jazz station. So I wasn't into it until uh, I started figuring out that it was cool to do that, you know? <laughs> and I didn't have much else going for me. <laughs> I sucked at school. <laughs> so I fit right in uh, in that scene. Were you surfing and stuff? Like, how deep were you into the, into I, the lifestyle I, we assumed? I didn't start surfing. I had, like, boogie board and stuff. But once I started, I met Brad, and I started jamming with him. He taught me how to surf. And I surfed for, like, about 10 years. And then we got on the road, and then I stopped surfing because of the... It's like a lifestyle of something that you got to do every day. You know? can't go on the road and come back and think you're going to have the strength to catch a wave. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, if you don't mind, about first meeting Brad. What was your first impression of him? What was he like? Like, how did you meet? All that stuff. I know you've told it, but it's fun to get it. Uh, well, get like Rome said about himself, about being passionate. Well, yeah, that was the opinion of Brad. And um, the first time I met him, it was really weird. This uh, friend of mine that was a musician... Dave, Dak, and I, he was in a punk rock band, but I went to go see him one time in, at Cafe de Grand in Hollywood. I, I was too young to go to clubs, so he wanted to borrow my bass amp. I said, hey, yeah, if you, but you got, I get to go. One <laughs> <laughs> <What> condition. <laughs> and then, so we go to this club, and uh, this is called uh, the Cafe de Grand, where all the homeless punkers live there and stuff, and it was a super weird place. And this dude was Filipino, and his friend was Filipino, and then the, the Two other guys in the band were white, and they went in the dressing room and came out of the dressing room dressed in, all in drag, you know? Like, I never knew of that side of them, you know? But <laughs> obviously, he was like a New York Dolls fan, you know? But they were like hardcore punk. I mean, we went to the liquor store and got whistled at all the way there and back to get smokes and stuff. It was it was a trip. But anyways, <laughs> I don't know, maybe like a month later, he called me up and he goes, Hey, dude, man, there's this guy that, that lives near you, and you got to meet him. You know, you guys will play good together. <laughs> I went over there and I had a guitar. See, I was uh, at the time I was playing in this really shitty 
punk rock band then i sucked at guitar anyways and <laughs> we jammed and we were just like he we were playing circle jerks like exploited you know whatever we could think up that we both knew and then he was way better on guitar so i came over the next day with that orlando bass and that's where i grew to love playing bass and i had no idea that i was into playing bass until then <laughs> well, that actually makes sense because like when bands have a really unique sound it's like you learned to play bass with him like yeah. that was so it, it's intertwined that's really interesting was he doing all those crazy like jazz chords and he like, didn't even think he could sing he lived in tustin right before that he moved to long beach to his dad's because his mom couldn't control him anymore and <laughs> he lived in tustin and there's not even sidewalks there you know it's like kind of country so he was sheltered but so when he came to long beach he just found out about punk rock and other stuff like the cure and um at first he didn't know about reggae but he was into like cure and some of the stuff like that that i wasn't into yet but we started playing it together like whatever we could muster up you know and he helped me like broaden my horizons for music because i was like really just narrow headed thinking you were like punk hardcore rock. punk yeah, yeah and it, was more, it was like local punk too you know like maybe some like english punk but because there was a scene that a lot of people don't know what that is because it doesn't really exist anymore. And the punk scene is like actually where kids go outside, you know, for one. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I know, you get in trouble with friends, and, and that's a good thing. Wanted to pause for just a minute and talk about The Jump, a brand new original podcast from MailChimp. It's hosted by Shirley Manson of Garbage, and she sits down with seven of the most influential musicians of the past couple decades, and it's a good list. Nico Case, Esperanza Spalding, Big Boy, Dave One from Chromio, Perfume Genius, Courtney Love, and Karen O. And they kind of zero in on a single song, one that represents their artistic moment of truth. And they look at the impact that, that song had on their careers and lives. Kind of a cool, focused concept for a podcast. And Shirley's always one of the best interviews in rock. I'm sure she's one of the best interviewers as well. And new episodes start June 24th. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. On Apple, Spotify, check it out now. Was there like one club the way Gilman Street was the one club for like yeah, there Berkeley? Was, there was like Fender's Ballroom in Long Beach and there's a bunch of other places but that was the most notable one and Bogarch later on. What was your first gig together? Like, do you remember? Oh, uh, well, we played like a million. You know, actually, our first gig was at his mom's house because they were out of town <laughs> and our audience was his sister and <laughs> maybe, just, I don't even think there was anybody else there. But um, it was supposed to be a party. It's just, actually, it's just, it's like South Park. But, um, I'm turning off and I'm putting on my stupid TV. Yeah, we, we were called Hogan's Heroes, and this drunk guy that sang, and, and we played some punks. I think we had a couple, like, two originals and for some reason i thought brad wasn't in hogan's heroes i thought that was just you and bud but i, I could be no yeah. that was oh. just me and brad oh, okay you and brad yeah. okay 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 yeah and then brad brought a friend of his with us and he uh had intercourse with his sister for her birthday so she was stoked and um <laughs> <laughs> i'm not as a good birthday i'm not sure gig is the right word for what this was but <laughs> well that was our we were supposed to be playing a party Okay. You know, so that was a party right there. And then we took his dad's Lotus out, and that wasn't a good idea, but we survived at least. And we drove around these Tustin Hills. Brad was driving, like, really fast, and we almost went off a cliff, and then um, we were all drunk, you know? I mean, I was, like, 16 or something, and he was, like, 17 or 18, and 
So we decided not to drive the Lotus anymore. <laughs> there was tire marks that went right up to the edge of the cliff. Man. That thing stopped fast, though, I'll tell you. Were you like, this dude, Brad, is even wilder than me, is even crazier than me, or was it kind of even? Like, how'd you kind of gauge it at that point? Well, I mean, because he was, like, sheltered, and then he got into this punk scene, and it was kind of dying out, but still kind of going on. He embraced it really hard, and um, he was really smart. He was always good in school and stuff, so no, I, I was a total loser. And, um, <laughs> you know, if I didn't meet him, I wouldn't be sitting here right now, that's for sure. <laughs> I'd be on my mom's couch or something. <laughs> and he kind of taught you about reggae, right? Or is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, then we started playing in this band called Sloppy Seconds, and that was, was Eric Ward and Ted, the two black dudes, and... Um, and then this Asian dude, Tom Springley, and Marshall's sister. Marshall was in the band with us later on. She played sax. And they introduced ska to me, and I wasn't into it. <laughs> like, but Brad made me play it because, you know, I wanted to play with Brad. And, you know, like, we just, like, meshed so good together. Uh, I played it anyways. And I was playing the pick at the time, too, and that was weird. I mean, that's the thing. It's like people listen to those the albums, and it's like it sounds like these guys were around for a million years. It sounds like such a developed band, and that's why, because you went through all these phases yeah, before it I, became really supportive. Well, it took me a while to, to listen to anything else, but, you know, just... just the narrowhead punk rock, like you know, three chords, whatever. Brad went to like the Caribbean with his dad on sailing ships. His dad, like, we used to race boats with uh, like a 36 foot sailboat with his dad. And so he had a captain's license and they charter a boat for vacation. So one time he went, when he was there, he heard reggae for the first time. And then when he came back, he was all stoked about it and wanted to show me it. And this is like right before we started playing it with Sloppy Seconds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was listening to Bob Marley stuff and I just wasn't feeling it at first. But I remember when the day I was, we were driving in Brad's Cherokee Jeep and he had these MTX speakers that were like you know having a subwoofer was like new back then and i'm all i, I love this music you know I just, like, I, I, from that day on you know it's like i just loved it you know people don't realize like you would have had to change your whole musicality from the like straight ahead aggression of yeah. punk rock bass to the laid back groove that you learned to play you had to learn how to be in the pocket all that stuff you had to change everything i imagine yeah that was the easy part it was just trying to get myself to listen to it and i come from a family of musicians so it's in my blood and i'm what you call a natural and it's really easy to pick up on stuff you know if you're a natural and if you're not then it's really hard to <laughs> yeah tell, you, me, tell so, me about it yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that skepticism that you initially had like i don't know about this reggae i don't yeah. know about these cure influences i don't know that also was shared on the scene as you guys started to transform right i mean yeah people, but then people... i heard the bad brains <laughs> You know, and then when I heard them, they were punk rock and reggae, and they didn't put punk rock and reggae in the same song, and they didn't play ska either, but they were punk, and then they would play reggae and, like, metal. And so I started learning that it all had the same attitude, really, you know, like reggae music had a lot of the same type of attitude as punk rock, and so it's called like rude boy you know like early rock steady you know the, yeah yeah all that kind of stuff like the specials and it was badass we went to go see fishbone for a free gig my it was the first time i saw anything like that and it was at Reseda country club in Reseda, and 
fishbone playing first so that was my first introduction to, to seeing anything that was like ska or reggae. Yeah. Uh, and these guys were in the air more than they were on the ground you know if you've ever seen them before and they throw their their horns up in the air to their roadies and it's incredible you know and we went home and we, right away by the next day or something we wrote date rape wow yeah i mean how did that if you guys are in a room writing how did that work and that's such a breakthrough obviously well, Brad, so Brad just had like he was mad smart and you know he had a huge vocabulary and and he was had a lot of passion for whatever he did and uh date rape was like a big thing on the news at the time so he made up a fictional story about date rape and the chords were just like listening to the fishbone that we just found out about you know years later i was listening to this song that fishbone was playing and i told my girlfriend yeah this is like my favorite fishbone song she's all oh, that's your guys' song. <laughs> they're 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 playing our song. Yeah, <laughs> covering date rape. <laughs> yeah, and apparently that I mean I wouldn't say it boosted their career. It might have though. I mean it seemed like it was being played a lot and they were playing it all the time. So once we heard about Fishbone, not only that we made up that song, but we like played a lot of songs off that first album. You know, like uh, Party at Round Zero and um, Ugly Skanky to the Beat. We do today actually. Wow! Wow! <laughs> yeah. is a really key connection there. I wanted to tell you about The Jump, a new MailChimp original podcast hosted by Shirley Manson. She sits down with seven of the most influential musicians of the last two decades. Nico Case, Esperanza Spalding, Big Boy, Dave One from Chromio, Courtney Love, Karen O of the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, and Perfume Genius. In each episode, they discuss a song that represents the guest's artistic moment of truth and the impact that song had on their careers and their lives. New episodes start June 24th. The Jump is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's crazy is the songwriting and band sound that evolved from there. I mean, you were writing together and at the same time seeing, like, Brad's songwriting talent like sort of flourish is the only way I could say it what was it like to see you know as they got more melodic more complicated more more beautiful as time goes on what, what was it like well, to see first, them collaborate I mean I had to tell him all the time that he could sing a lot better than the jerk offs that we had singing for <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird to think that yeah and then we had a doctor room and we sat in, in his room for like hours every day and his dad was over there and he had a full liquor cabinet and so i dip into the scotch <laughs> and um we just worked like we collaborated the songs like and they just came together like so easy and it was just fun how did this sort of hip-hop drum loop kind of thing start to come into the the picture probably when well actually before we even had a drummer he was programming his drum machine the doctor rhythm just like really you know basic yeah people forget how shitty those things sounded yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and then um the sampling thing came later and the coolest thing that we achieved i think is that we put like all that those different influences and made them ours in one song you know yeah and that's what no one else has really has done i mean maybe now or something but back then no no, it's why you guys are still a thing. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's the whole thing. <laughs> Prove the test of time. Yeah. Yeah. time. In the time we have left, I want to ask you about some of the greatest hits. I mean, like, tell me what you remember about what I got coming together, like from the very beginning of it. Reason 
forgot that. Well, that was a little later. And, oh, yeah, um, yeah, we're jumping ahead, yeah. Yeah, that song, I didn't have much to do with that song because uh, we weren't getting along at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that work? He was sitting there writing, and he came with a demo and was like, play this? Or <laughs> what, what, what went down? Yeah, um, actually, yeah, it was already laid out pretty much, and I just put the bass on it. Fair enough. And what about, maybe this is the same, I'm, I'm asking about the breakthrough album here, but I mean, what about Santeria? Same thing? I'd spend it all if I could find that Hannah in that Sancho that she's found. Well, I wrote all the music to that song on the previous album, Robin the Hood, I think. Lincoln Highway Dead? Yeah, Lincoln Highway Dead. That's right. It's just... Yeah, and I just did it on, on his four track, and he loved it a whole lot, and we put some samples on it and put it on Robin the Hood, and so he wanted to make it more that, he I, made up some lyrics to it and that, then, that song has a sick chord progression where did that particular where the was, style of it come from where did that come from it just came from right here man like <laughs> that's it, was, it was simple you know like that's back the, to, you know like when your style. creative juices flow like it's not hard at all it's, you don't have to sit there and like think about oh i'm gonna make up a reggae song or whatever you know <laughs> you just like push record i think it's doing time that was almost left off the album because of like a sample clearance problem yeah or a publishing thing Gershwin hmm they weren't down for it same uh, Led Zeppelin didn't clear get out the song off yeah. 40 because it had it was almost more than a sample kind of had the bass line on it too and um and they're like fuck you what was it like in the wake of Brad's passing? It was unclear whether you could do anything going forward with this music. There were various attempts, and then it really was Rome who helped you make it an ongoing thing again. I mean, well, that, yeah, that I mean, must I, have been a crazy thing to realize that, that this dude over here could help you move forward. Yeah, I just kept, you know, you got to live on, and shit happens, and that was like, you know, a huge shit it killed part of me you know pretty much and i played with other people and i played in a drag racing band playing stand-up not like drag as in like dressing drag but um, <laughs> but you know that's a good idea but um we did a tour and then the promoters uh they booked them with my name on it of course i didn't even think about that and every place we played on this small, short little tour up to san francisco and back everybody's going play you know a sublime song and these guys were not i don't think they listened to sublime or anything the guys that played it was like surf music acid or something yeah He's just telling me five more minutes. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> five seconds left. <laughs> Make it good. <laughs> what he's saying so sucks. I'm no, yeah. Slow down. <laughs> so I mean, Bud was briefly involved in this. Then he wasn't. Is it worth explaining, like, sort of like what happened? He, just, he didn't travel well. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> that we always sense. had to get replacements and stuff. Kelly Vargas and uh, Marshall Goodman were two drummers that I knew, but they weren't as good as him. So whenever Bud felt like he wanted to be back in the band, we'd take him because of just the dynamics and the, the chemistry was like just perfect with the three of us, you know? Yeah, so go ahead. <laughs> no, no, man. I mean, the craziest thing to think of must have been in the time after Brad's death when it's like you're in mourning and watching your friend and your band 
become more famous than you had ever been while he was alive. That whole thing, that must uh, have been the freakiest, most upsetting experience. I can't even imagine what that was, was like. stupid. Like, we went to the MTV Awards, and I wasn't really excited, you know? I was wearing, like, like some puma sweats and some creeper shoes, if you can imagine what that looked like. <laughs> you know, because it's a fashion show. Right. <laughs> and um, Bud was like, yeah, dude, okay, when we go up to the stand and take this... Uh, for the trophy i'm gonna say i'd like to thank oh no i'm supposed to say i'd like to thank leonard skinnard for and then he was gonna say for writing working for mca because we were working right, for MCA. right i just put down a bottle of like the best tequila i've ever had with the cactus in the middle of it you know <laughs> and i was fucking shit canned and oh yeah and then what's I his can't name blame you, yeah. he's a great actor and and he was in that movie uh water boy what's his name helping somebody oh, uh, kippa costner Sandler? Sandler. Sandler. oh i think he okay. said water world and he just did that happy gilmore movie right yeah and so bud walks up there and he like goes up to the guy and he said some like really silly joke and pretend like he was golfing or something i don't even know but i was wasted and i went up there and said Leonard Skinner <laughs> stumbled off. It worked out pretty good. But, um, yeah, it sucked. Yeah, man. So this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us as a podcast, again, wherever you get your podcasts. And maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. I read them all, even the crazy ones. And as always, thanks so much for listening. And we will definitely see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.